about a time when you challenged yourself. Maybe you tried something you've never done before. Maybe something no one has ever done before. Most likely, you faced some problems along the way. For today's guest, that problem was probably the the moment we realized we got frostbite. Where we were at that point on the trail, we still had about a two-day hike out just to get to a road. So you have a long time to think about what you've just done and what might happen. Your problem probably wasn't very nice either. At least in the moment, it wasn't. But what about when everything's said and done? How we reflect on those problems? You have to have those moments to be able to have some compared to your more elated moments. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Mountain Meister. Today we welcome Sean Forey. Hi, Sean. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Things are good on the East Coast. You're on the West Coast, right, California? Yeah, I'm just down the road here from uh, Yosemite Valley. Very cool. For the listeners who don't know Sean, he may, in fact, be the most interesting man in the world. As an outward-bound wilderness instructor, he takes both children and adults on backpacking and climbing expeditions. He also runs scenic interpretive tours during the winter with 10 dog sled teams. He's also a hiker. This past winter, he and Justin Lichter became the first people to ever through-hike the Pacific Crest Trail in the winter. But before all of this, Sean, I read at one point you managed high-end weddings for a catering company? Uh, it's, it's true. I've kind of been all over the spectrum of uh, things I've found myself doing. That just doesn't <laughs> quite fit with the rest of the resume. Who, who are you? <laughs> hey, it's all about long days and uh, just putting in very detail-oriented tasks on a daily basis. They're all true. Uh, so it's the same. <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, so I read you grew up in Amish country? Uh, it's true, yeah. I grew up uh, just across the river from uh, Lancaster County in Pennsylvania, so in a little town called York. And uh, I kind of grew up just seeing Amish communities on a daily basis. And I think that simplicity of life was ingrained in me pretty early uh, and something I, I really appreciate and value of being around that culture uh, growing up. Hmm. I'm from southwestern Pennsylvania, so not far. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, you're, are you familiar with it? Yeah, absolutely. How did you get into the the catering company? This is uh, I was just very surprised to see that. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was one of the uh, first jobs I've ever had, mm-hmm. um, and as with most most jobs, I was a friend of mine recommended me to start, and I was fifteen, sixteen years old, and I uh, just stuck with it and. Uh, I think having a job where your best friend is there as well is both a motivation to stay there and uh, just something I really enjoyed, uh, again, the long days and just I feel like I had many roles to fill there and eventually got to the point of just kind of managing um, weddings and all kinds of uh, high-end events. It was a, a unique first job and I'm glad I had those experiences growing up. Yeah, hard worker. But I guess at one point during a ritzy wedding, you just said, like, I need a career transition. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of things going on at that point in my life. I was uh, I was playing music pretty consistently, and uh, so I was traveling around a lot with that. And I think that's kind of where I got the travel bug and being able to wake up in a new place every day, um, doing, like, little tours and stuff. 
Um, and eventually I, you know, I heard about the Appalachian trail and it was kind of downhill from there or uphill, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> uh, you mentioned they're working with your best friend. I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, Justin Lichter, who you hiked the Pacific Crest Trail with. And I assume you've done some other hiking with him too. You didn't just jump in to the PCT, right? Yeah, correct. So we actually met on the Pacific Crest Trail, um, in 2004, that was our first year that we both hiked it, and we hiked it completely independently and didn't actually meet each other until about 200 miles from the end. And I think one of the unique things about um, friendships along any long-distance trail is that there's almost an instant bond or instant connection with the people that you meet, and I think those friendships can become lifelong endeavors. And we actually only hiked together maybe a day in 2004, um, but we, we managed to keep in touch and then Justin was out on <clears throat> a year long hike two years later and he was coming through Pennsylvania. So he was looking, you know, for a place to get out of the, out of the weather. He was coming through in winter at that point. So we met up and reconnected. And then later that summer, I was on the Continental Divide Trail myself and, um, he was out there as well. So we, uh, ended up finishing uh, together on that trail, and he was he was out for a year long. He did the Appalachian Trail and PCT and Continental Divide in a year. Uh, so it was cool to see him finish something that he put a lot of time and effort into, and it just got us talking about uh, future ambitions and future trips. And since then, we've done probably some of our harder trips together. From the interviews that I read online, it seems like you guys are really different. You have different personalities. Do I have that right? We're same in many ways and I, I think different and maybe as to uh, small like key areas. And I think the way we approach uh, problems and uh, decisions and I think hard times are, are very similar. And I think what makes our relationship work really well. Um, Justin's definitely a little more timid and more reserved and, and shy uh, at times. And uh, I can be a little bit more outgoing and, I guess the more vocal of the two, but beyond that, I think it's a really good pair of why we've been able to succeed in, in some of the trips that we've done together now. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, so I do the, the research beforehand on you guys and like seriously in the interviews, like the uh, written interviews online, it's like uh, Justin's question. The answer is a couple of lines long and then your <laughs> answer is like a full paragraph. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've known uh, Justin for over 10 years now and I'm still like prying to get information out of him, even <laughs> in, around the comfort of friends and family at, it can be like pulling teeth sometimes. Uh-huh. That's funny. So uh, his trail name is Trauma, which is an interesting fit for a, a timid guy like him. Do you know how he got the trail name Trauma? Uh, yeah, I do. So he uh, was part of a, an outdoor rec um, organization with his college. He went to the UC Santa Barbara, and they did a, a trip out to Utah, and <clears throat> it was like a base camp model, like 10-day or two-week trip, and... That was one of his first experiences outdoors, and just along that trip, he had a lot of uh, traumatic experiences, um, kind of serendipitously. Like, they ran out of food, so he found these old MREs uh, just kind of buried in the sand out there and decided to eat them. And uh, I guess one of them was not very – it was a fortified cheese MRE that was more green than mine at that point. <laughs> Uh, he got dive bombed by some ravens. Uh, so just a lot of just strange things that seem to be focused on him and none of the other participants. <laughs> that trip. That's good. Now, how about yours, Pepper? 
well, it comes back to being in from York, Pennsylvania. Uh, I got the name on the Appalachian Trail, and that was my first long hike. And part of that routine of just getting into the hike is you start meeting a lot of people and introducing yourself. And uh, it's it was uncanny. It seemed like every time I told people I was from York, they thought I said New York. Um, <laughs> and that can get a little frustrating. So just one time I said, no, York like the peppermint patty. Uh, and that's all it takes to get stuck to with get a trail uh, name. <laughs> trail name for 15 years now. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to uh, Colin Arisman, who did the who through hiked the PCT a couple of years ago, um, and he I found that his trail name was Miracle Zen. So I asked him how he got it, but he said it wasn't appropriate for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of amazing uh, trail names out yeah. there. I was about to try to give myself a trail name, but I heard that that's a no-no. <laughs> it's better to be uh, dubbed something you, you kind of have to live with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on uh, to the the through hike during the winter of the PCT. Um, this was very, very revolutionary. I don't think I realized how revolutionary it was until I really started looking into this. Nobody, uh, Obviously, nobody's done it before. Um, has anyone attempted it before? Um, from our uh, research, and we actually didn't find this out until after we started, but there was a couple in the 80s, apparently, that uh, attempted it. They were going northbound. I don't have their names off the top of my head. Um, they got about 300 miles in and ultimately uh, met their their demise on a, I guess they had some icy conditions and went down a, uh, a ravine. Oh, wow. It might have been good that you didn't know that before you <laughs> Yeah, well, we it. found out uh, maybe a day before. We were like in transit to the trail. We were like, hmm, okay, that, that kind of put more of a reality on what we were about to attempt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, they went northbound. You went southbound, correct? That's correct, yeah. And so what time did you start? What time of the year? And was it even an option to you to go northbound or was southbound kind of the uh, the way to go? Well, the direction we were going to travel was probably the thing we debated the most. Hmm. Um, you know, we've been planning this trip for probably over five years. And every time we looked at it, you know, it was hard to decide which what was going to be in our, our favor the most. And even de- just defining what is a winter trip, what is um, right. what's the time frame for that? Because um, you're going to be on different parts of the trail at different times of the year. So we wanted to pay as much tribute to the idea of winter as possible, um, and not try and cheat things. Um, so we, the way we looked at it is, we wanted to be, we wanted to start after all the northbounders finished, um, and we wanted to try and finish before any of the northbounders start. So in theory. Uh, we'd be the only ones out there for the entire season. So we started at the uh, kind of the middle or tail end of the fall. So it was late October. It was October 21st that we started. And we actually flipped to southbound the week prior to starting. That was wow. that, that's how long we were debating uh, which direction to go. And a lot of those those reasons were both Justin and I are really familiar with the, the Sierras. We spent a lot of time there personally. That's where I work with Outward Bound. And... So it just felt like a little bit of um, more familiarity and comfort knowing we were heading into deeper into winter and deeper into places that we are more familiar with. Mm-hmm. And if we could get through that final hurdle of the High Sierra, uh, we knew we'd have some easier desert miles to, to finish out the trip. Right, right. Is that how it played out? Uh, yeah, it, it did actually. And um, all along with this trip, we knew that 
it, there are so many things that would have to line up in our favor. Um, you know, we, you're kind of, you're working through the transition of fall to winter to spring. Um, so really trying to set you up yourself up with where to be in the best place at the best time. And, um, we wanted to be out of Washington before the avalanche danger got too high. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted to t- try and time the high Sierras with when it's historically uh, a drier spell in the Sierras. So the last seven out of nine winters, it's been dry Januarys, and that's what we were really pushing for is getting to the high Sierra by January. Hmm. So it sounds like you, you had some expectations going into this. We've talked about expectations on the show before and you know how it can change how you actually feel about the outcome. Going into this, would you say that you had high expectations or low expectations? Or I guess even no, no expectations is sometimes the route that I like to take. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a good, it's a good question. I feel like we had optimistic expectations okay. and, um, you know, I've, I've jokingly said we, we have about a 17% chance of doing this at the start and those, those odds increased as we went along, but, uh, we were totally comfortable knowing that it might take multiple attempts to, to hmm. try and pull this off. And I think going in with that rationale and mentality, um, didn't put a lot of pressure on us to make poor decisions along the way. There wasn't that time bound element of we have to do this right now in this moment. Hmm. I'm sure that can be a motivating piece. Um, but in terms of making, um, logical and educational decisions that were fact based, um, we, we were able to take the time element a little bit out of the equation. Interesting. So 17% at the beginning, maybe jokingly, but w- was there a time on the trail when that was like a 0.01% chance? It's just like a really low point where you're like, ah, I don't know if we can do this. Probably the the moment we realized we got frostbite. We were in uh, Northern Oregon, just south of Mount Hood at that point. And, you know, having worked in Minnesota in the winters, I'm pretty accustomed to seeing uh, cold injuries and frost nip and frostbite. And I know how long that can take to heal. I know how long it can take to see how severe it is. Um, so it, where we were at that point it, uh, on the trail, uh, we just got a, a two-foot dump, and it was record-setting lows. And we still had about a two-day hike out just to get to a road. Mm. So you have a long time to think about what you've just done and what might happen before you even get to a safe place. And I remember we finally got out to a road and, and – uh, we're sitting in a diner getting a meal and just kind of having that discussion. Like this could be the end. And, um, you know, <laughs> we had our shoes off under the, uh, the dining, uh, the, the dinner table there and, um, just kind of feet just throbbing and, and still a little bit numb. And just, that was probably our, our point in the trip where things weren't looking the most grim in terms of, uh, being able to continue on. Ooh. So here's an interesting question. Like when you reflect on, that time there's like some psychology out there that says that humans have a difficult time like really remembering bad feelings unless you were talking about something really severe do you reflect on that time very negatively or is it just kind of like a, a, a something that you remember do you know what i'm saying yeah i think it's um for me it's not like a negative thing or a positive thing i think collectively it's just all part of the experience mm-hmm. and you have to have those moments to be able to have something to compare to maybe your, your higher moments or your more elated moments. Mm-hmm. And just to be able to sit there and I think 
be honest with yourselves on um, what the situation is. I think that that was a critical piece with how we approached a lot of the decision making along the trip. More Mountain Meister with Sean Forey coming up in a bit. But first, let's thank a sponsor of ours and tell you about the great deal that they're offering you. We are supported by the DeLorme InReach Explorer. It's the world's only satellite communicator with built-in navigation. With the InReach Explorer, you can send and receive messages, plan routes, drop waypoints, and share your journey from anywhere in the world, literally anywhere in the world. But its other features are what makes the InReach not only that navigation device, but also a survival kit. During emergency situations, you can trigger an SOS and interact with DeLorme's 24-7 search and rescue monitoring center. For $35 off of your purchase, go to inreachdelorme.com and use the code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout. And now, back to the show. Now, what about a, a high point on the trip? What were some of the things that you really reflect positively on, besides probably the entire experience? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, having going a month straight in Washington and just having the sun come out for the first time um, was a huge morale booster when we were that early into the trip. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that stands out. And I think collectively just the, the experience of solitude out on the trip, um, you don't really realize how remote you are or how by yourselves you are until you're around other people. And I think having this month to adjust off the trail and be around people more often, uh, Mm -hmm. kind of puts the trip into perspective of just, I mean, we didn't see anybody out there for 1700 miles. You didn't see anybody? Um, we didn't see anybody. Oh my god! I thought you would have like run into somebody for the first seventeen hundred. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nobody on trail. I mean, we were obviously going into right, town, right. getting supplies and stuff. But I thought for sure we'd we'd see uh, more, at least more tracks in the snow. Uh, we saw a couple once you got closer to some trailheads, but um, just that moment of seeing somebody for the first time on trail. It wasn't until. We're in the Southern California desert of, oh, there's another hiker out here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That's amazing. So I I said I'm from uh, southwestern PA. Uh, I grew up on a farm, and it's funny because I I do a lot of running where I live now in Boston. And when I go home, I'll go running. And sometimes I'll go for, you know, like a five-mile run and not see any cars at all. And I think that's really weird to not see anybody (laughs) – for 1,700 miles of walking. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. And uh, you don't realize how that is happening until like, you actually meet somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just kind of in the moment. It just becomes normal. Right, right. Yeah. You, for me, it was like you see a car go by and you're like, wow, I haven't seen any cars yet. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Um, so this is a, definitely a cliche question, but have to ask it. What, what did you feel like when you finally finished? In my mind, there's almost two finishing points, uh, for the trip. Um, probably our, our highest high of the whole trip was getting over Forster Pass. Um, it's in the Southern Sierra. It's the highest point along the PCT. And, um, it's a pass that has, is shrouded in a lot of mysteries, 
even northbound hikers are always asking questions about it. There's just a really steep couloir that you have to hmm. ascend northbound or for us descend. So we were skiing off of it. And it, it was the uh, literal final tr- uh, hurdle for us in the whole trip. So we were getting over that pass on a kind of whiteout day. And earlier in the day, I fell into a creek. And, you know, having wet ski boots is not the best approach to going over a high pass. Um, and it was just this moment of um, just doubt that we didn't know what we were going to see when we got to the top. There's always a notorious cornice that hangs over that pass. So you're just going, 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 not knowing what you're going to see and uh, not knowing what your game plan is fully going to be until you have all the the, uh, the information in front of you. And just getting skiing off of that pass and getting to the bottom was for me, the, the end of the challenge of the trip. Hmm. And probably when I felt most elated, um, that's, I think in that moment we realized we're, we, we're going to pull this off. There's nothing that we're going to see south of here that is, we haven't seen already or, or is going to stop us at this point. And I think mentally knowing that we did it, but we still have seven, 700 miles of desert hiking to go, uh, was a little bit of an unexpected, uh, challenge throughout the trip. But to finally get there and, um, at the, at the Southern Terminus and especially having a lot of trail friends and, and my family there was a huge moment of just uh, relief and elation. And I think um, just to be able to share that with, with people that I love and care about was a really special moment when, especially when we hadn't seen anybody for so long. Yeah. So it's been how many days or I guess months now since you finished? Yeah, it's about uh, five weeks ago. We finished on March 1st. Cool. And how has it been coming back? Are you are you all recovered? Uh, I I would say I'm all recovered, and um, thankfully this isn't my first uh, long trip and long experience away from my my other life. Um, coming back from the Appalachian Trail, the first time I did it in 2003, that was a huge adjustment period, and I think mentally it took me a long time to figure out how to adjust back to normal life. Um, but those transitions have become a lot easier, and I think just applying the lessons I learned on the trail to my normal life really helped ease that transition. And for me, just staying busy really helps. You said the lessons. What kind of lessons do you take? Oh, I think the the biggest challenge when someone comes back from an experience of backpacking for many days on end, you know, you live such a simple life that when you get back to society, you see how frivolous people live or how minute. Um, problems are a big deal for people and just being surrounded, surrounded by that, if people being frustrated in the grocery store line or, um, you know, everything's a big deal. I think just being able to live a simple life and, um, essentially live out of a, a backpack when you're at home, um, continues to carry that thread of those, those themes of simplicity throughout your life. And it just becomes easy to, go from one wilderness setting to an urban setting mm. and back and forth. So you have a whole spreadsheet of the gear that you used on your website. I really enjoyed looking through that. Um, 
the job that I had before this one required a lot of looking at Excel spreadsheets. So it was a little <laughs> nostalgic. <laughs> Let's see, you have the weight of each item on there, and then you also have comments of what you thought of the gear or why you used it before the trip and then how it performed after. Uh, I think you have at least 100 pieces of gear on there. I'll have the link to it on your Meister profile page. So... We talk about gear on this show by getting a recommendation from you, our Meister. If you had to suggest one or two pieces of gear for our listeners, try to make them unique or fun if you'd like, or just something that you're so passionate about, what would you recommend? Uh, it's a great question, and I think the the single most thing that boosted our spirits at the end of the day was just our entire sleep system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were we were a lot of things that people don't think about about winters that you only have about 10 hours of daylight. So we spent a lot of time in our tarp, in our mm-hmm. sleeping bags. Uh, and just being able to recover at the end of the day was a huge um, piece of morale and um, recovery for us. Uh, so the systems we were using were, we used a two-bag system for our sleep system. So we had a down inner bag, and I'm a huge fan of quilts, so I was using a Katabatic um, Palisades quilt. It's a 30-degree down bag, and over top of that, I had a Mountain Laurels Design Spirit Quilt, which is a synthetic bag. So that combination is a perfect balance of lightweight and being able to manage the moisture of a, of a winter environment. Um, and sleep. we were sleeping on a Thermarest X-Therm uh, NeoAir, uh, which has an amazing R-value for how light and thin it is. Um, so... Just being able to crawl into that warm cocoon at the end of the day was a, a huge piece of serenity. It sounds fantastic. It's yeah. <laughs> it's early April in Boston, but for some reason it snowed yesterday. So yeah. the, a good sleep system sounds nice to me. Uh, you can find, for the listeners, you can find those pieces of gear on Sean's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Now, this is a question that I don't think I have ever asked, but since you're such a gear guru, I'm wondering if there are any pieces of gear where you would say never, ever use that, <laughs> like a piece of gear that you despise. <laughs> well, th- I would say there's definitely some learnings in gear. A lot of the the gear we were looking for, no one really caters to um, the type of trip we were doing, especially in the realm of ski gear. Um, so there's definitely some inherent flaws with the ski gear we use. There's nothing I would say I would ever use again. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest learning was not using carbon fiber trekking poles in the winter. Uh, I think both Justin and I probably broke um, five or six different sections of those poles. And wow. I think just the um, carbon gets a little bit brittle when it's cold. And you're just dealing with more forces in the winter with, you know, pulling through snow. Um so there was a lot of days where I specifically <laughs> was breaking a lot of poles and getting pretty frustrated <laughs> and actually just breaking them. I had this Bo Jackson moment of just breaking poles over my knee <laughs> and chucking them in a tree and then realizing, oh, now I got to climb the tree to get those out. <laughs> so I don't, I don't wish that frustration upon anybody. Russell, uh, who used to host this podcast, had an infatuation for carbon fiber. Uh, Russell... I'm sure you're listening to this right now. 
don't use carbon fiber in the winter, no matter how much you love it. <laughs> uh, so is there going to be a, a film created about this? I know you have a lot of films uh, on Vimeo and such uh, about your other trips. I, I assume there's going to be a film about this? Uh, Justin and ourself, myself didn't take a lot of video footage throughout the trip, um, but there, we've been partnering with uh, a gentleman named Brent, who is just doing a, a personal just documentary piece. Cool. Uh, on, on the trip for us. So Brent Yance, he's should be coming out with something by the end of the month. Uh, I think he's hoping to release that, you know, on some of the, the mountain festival film, film tours. Cool. Look forward to that. On these videos that you create, you do a lot of talking to the camera and even on the solo expeditions, you're uh, like, you turn it around and you talk to the camera as do many hikers. You do a really good job of it. I have to say, um, it kind of, it kind of reminds me of me trying to talk into the microphone by myself it's got to be weird isn't it like turning the video camera around on you do you get used to that um at at times like you're you're moving and through landscapes and you're you're having your own internal dialogue and having thoughts and for me it's just a matter of articulating that Uh um to myself really out loud you know a lot of these trips it's either myself or justin might be along and so you kind of you feel that um, that privacy or that comfort, uh, it's just, it's just you out there and you're already thinking about these things. So you're just articulating it, uh, to the camera and the ca- camera's just capturing it. Uh-huh. That's, that's actually really hard to do though. I feel like when, when I go running, I have like these really intricate thoughts that I'm like, wow, I'm a genius. And then when I try to like articulate what I think, it just doesn't work out. Do you run into that? Oh yeah, I feel like okay. a, a babbling idiot when I talk, but uh, <laughs> it's like prose and of Beethoven in my head. Right, really good. <laughs> exactly, and it's also hard to talk when you're not talking to anybody else. Like when I do these other recordings, but I'm not talking to you. I still have to do some recording for the podcast, and I don't think that people realize, and I don't realize when I listen to podcasts that most of the time the person narrating is literally just talking in a room by themselves. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's not weird at all. <laughs> the other day I tried this. I was getting really frustrated with myself, and I, uh, I, I just didn't sound natural, I thought. I, it sounded like either I was reading off of something or it just didn't sound like the way a person would talk. So I tried to like envision myself talking to somebody, and that didn't work. So finally I, was, I turned on the webcam on my computer and I, I looked at myself and tried to have a conversation <laughs> with myself as if, as if I was talking to somebody. It was a weird day. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> anyway, Sean, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Uh, for the listeners, you can find out more about Sean at Sean Forey, S-H-A-W-N-F-O-R-R-Y.com. You can see highlights, uh, pictures, a quote from Sean on his Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Before we let you go, Sean, we want to hear who you'd like to hear next on Mountain Meister. There is definitely a lot of women in the outdoor um, long-distance hiking community at the moment that are doing some really impressive things. Mm -hmm. And um, I am personally impressed by a woman named Kristen Gates. She was the one of the first women to go solo across the Brooks Range in Alaska a few years ago, and just this past year did a solo uh, Yukon paddle or paddle down the Yukon. So 
she's definitely spent a lot of time by herself and I think will have a, a unique perspective on um, what it's like to be by yourself, be a woman, and be, I think she's in her early 20s, so hmm. a lot of people doubted our abilities and, you know, I feel a lot of privilege as a, a, a white man uh, where it's, it's a little bit more accepted to uh, push boundaries like this, but... I think a, a woman like Kristen probably deals with that more on a daily basis of people doubting her or saying that you shouldn't be out there doing those types of things. What a great topic of conversation. For the listeners, keep an ear out for Kristen on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Sean, I have to ask, I've heard some birds chirping. Are you, are you outside or are the birds just that loud? It's, it's, it adds so much character to the interview. <laughs> um, there's a single pane window in front of me. Okay, very so- cool. It's probably our listeners who are driving to work or uh, wherever they're listening are probably having such a peaceful time listening to this. Great. (laughs) Thank you, Sean. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Sean Forey, ex-high-end wedding manager, current long-distance hiker, and first person to thru-hike the Pacific Crest Trail in the winter. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget that you can get $35 off of your purchase of an InReach Explorer at inreachdelorme.com using the code MEISTER at checkout. We know that getting away from it all is great as long as you make it back with the DeLorme InReach Explorer's tracking functions and its ability to trigger an interactive SOS. You can do that. Enjoy the rest of your day or your night, depending on when you listen. I'm the host of this podcast, Ben Shank. Thank you for listening to Mountain Meister.